What do you think it would have been like growing up with Jesus? We know he didn't descend from heaven as a fully grown man beginning his preaching ministry, but rather was conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb. And like every other person uh, ever born, began as a series of microscopic cells that grew into uh, the man Jesus Christ. And so what that means is he had a infancy. He had a childhood. What would have been like to grow up alongside him in that house, seeing him day in and day out as you yourself grew up? Well, this morning as we continue our series of overviewing the Bible, we come to the first letter actually written to the church. We chronologically have looked at the story of the New Testament, haven't we? With the four gospels showing Jesus' birth, His life, His death, His resurrection. And then last week we looked at uh, how Jesus continued His ministry through His people, the church, in the book of Acts. But in terms of the timing of how the, the, the books were actually written, what we have is actually the, what we believe to be the very first document uh, written uh, to the new covenant people of God, the church, in the letter of James. And it is here in this letter and in its author, we in fact find someone who did indeed grow up in the same household with Jesus. James was one of the children Mary and Joseph had after Christ was born. And though as uh, the Apostle John tells us in his gospel, J James, along with the rest of his brothers, did not in fact believe Christ to be the Messiah until after the resurrection. Nevertheless, I cannot help but believe Jesus left an indelible mark on him as they were growing up together. Let me explain it this way. People have often speculated as to why Joseph... Uh, is not at all mentioned uh, in the Gospels as Jesus is an adult um, uh, going about his ministry. And uh, there's lots of all kinds of crazy ideas, in fact, about that. But I think the simplest is simply to, to believe that he, in fact, died uh, before Jesus turned 30 and began his ministry. But you need to think about that for a minute. You need to think about the culture of Jesus' day, the culture of his people, and what that would have meant. Jesus was the oldest son. And at whatever point the father died, then the responsibilities of the family, particularly the responsibilities that the father would have had, would have fallen on him as the oldest son still being in the house. Now, what were those responsibilities? Well, they would have been several, but there's just one that I want us to think about because it's appropriate for our discussion of James this morning, and that's the responsibility given in Deuteronomy 6, where Moses famously recounts for the people of Israel, uh, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lay down and when you rise up. This would have been the responsibility of the parents in a family uh, in Israel, particularly the father. And with Joseph dead, that would have meant this responsibility would have fallen to Jesus himself. Can you imagine family devotions with Jesus? Now, it could simply be that James became very familiar with Jesus' teaching after uh, the resurrection and after uh, he believed. And I'm sure he did that in part, but I cannot help but wonder if all of those days, all of those lessons, all of those asides that Jesus was giving to his own mother and his brothers and sisters, if that would not have left a mark on James himself. 
You see, when you read the, uh, the letter of James, in some ways it is unique among the rest of the letters because James is, does not have a clear line of argumentation. You read uh, any of Paul's letters, you read the, letter of, uh, the letters of Peter that we've just talked about, you read Hebrews, and what you find is this argument that they are clearly seeking to advance. It's very logically laid out, and that's not really the case with James. James seems, uh, at first glance, scattered. As we will see, there is an overarching theme there, but uh, his style of writing has led many people to, to call him the Proverbs of the New Testament or uh, seeing him indebted to the way the prophets very much will, will target several different themes or several different issues around the same theme and blast, as it were, uh, the old covenant people of God calling them back to faith. And while certainly I think wisdom literature and the prophetic literature of the Old Testament have uh, have been a major influence on James. I think if you actually were to sit down, perhaps even this afternoon, and take about 45 minutes and read the, 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 the letter of James and then go back to the Gospel of Matthew and read through the Sermon on the Mount, what you will actually find is a great deal of overlap. You see, James deals with many of the same themes, many of the same uh, almost paraphrasings of Jesus' teaching in this letter. And I think really that's almost the style you have in James' uh, letter. It's the same style that you see in the Sermon on the Mount. You understand that the Sermon on the Mount, though, was only three chapters in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew tells us it was an all-day event. Okay? If you just read through that, it doesn't take all day to read through that. What we have is simply the outline of Jesus' teaching on that day and many other days. And likewise, I think very much James is, is, uh, is, is hitting all of these rapid ideas uh, in the same fashion all around, though, a central theme, very much the central theme of the Sermon on the Mount, and that is this theme of faithfulness to God much like the Old Testament prophets who called to the people of God and said, you are dividing your love and your loyalty between God and other pagan deities and it is evident by your life. So James is writing to this new covenant people of God saying, things are just getting started. We're just launching off into the faith as the church and already, and already it is clear that what we need is to refocus our attention on living faithfully to God, not dividing our affections among other things. I think the clearest example of this emphasis is seen in chapter 4, verses 4 through 10, what is arguably uh, the key passage uh, of this book, and that is what we want to focus on uh, this morning. So I would encourage you to follow along as we read James chapter 4, verses 4 and following. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the, the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your, your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. 
This is the Word of God. This is very much the heart of James' message, and that is this, knowing whether or not knowing whether or not we are living a life that is inconsistent with the faith we, pre- we profess, and if so, realizing we must not continue acting like a friend of the world, but we must instead seek to be God's friend by submitting to Him in all humility, weeping in repentance over our sins and seeking after His will for our lives. In other words, we must strive for a single-minded life that flows from a single-minded faith. That is to say, if we have a focus to our faith, if we love and serve and worship God alone, then that will be reflected in our life. Our priorities will come into line. So the question is, how do we do that? How do we have a life that is focused, not divided, but focused on loving God and God alone? Well, James is very much a practical man, and he tells us exactly how we should go about doing that. Three things that we should see, three, three steps even, we might say, in seeking to have a single-minded faith that leads to a single-minded life. The first is this, we must recognize spiritual adultery. We must recognize spiritual, spiritual adultery. Now, if you were to read through the book of James up to this point, what you would have noticed immediately in verse 4 is a dramatic shift because James has been writing very much in, in encouraging ways, uh, though not without directness, saying, brothers and sisters, remember this. Brothers and sisters, live this way. Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters. And now he says, you adulterous people. It's a slight change in tone there. You know what I'm saying? If we were having a conversation, I went, brother, brother, and I said, you adulterer. We'd be like, whoa, you know, what just happened here? And what we see really as you're reading the letter is this passion building up in James as he's dealing with issue after issue. And to here he, he really gets to the root of the problem. And he says, this is the problem. And this is how you deal with it. One commentator calls it the most strongly worded call to repentance found anywhere else in the, in the New Testament. It is in fact language reminiscent of the Old Testament prophets where James is reminding them of the realities of a life that is pulled between two loves. A love for God and a love for the world. And he says, this is nothing less than adultery on a spiritual level. He says to them, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James tells the Christians, you've pledged your love for God. You've professed a single-minded devotion to Him. And yet, and yet you've proven yourself unfaithful by your love of the Word. And if that wasn't enough, he says, do you understand? Don't you realize what that means? If you are seeking to be a, a friend of the world, a lover of the world, then you have placed yourself in the same position as unbelievers. For whoever loves the world stands as God's enemy. You are making yourself on the side of God's enemies by your lifestyle. This is the very essence of the problem that James addresses. These Christians, again, they lack a single-minded faith, and therefore they're not leading a single-minded life. In James' words, he says they are double-souled, or my translation has double-minded. It means they are on the fence. And he says you can't live on the fence because inherently not to make a decision is to make a decision. To declare love for God and love for the world is ultimately to say we really don't love God like we say we do. Much of the book is in fact showing example and example and example of what such a life looks like. And it really flows from um, uh, some verses in chapter 1, which 
was originally going to be uh, where we would land uh, for the sermon this morning uh, because it's so crucial to the book as a whole. Listen to what he says beginning at verse 22 of chapter 1. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Now we get the imagery here, don't we? I mean, some of us experience this uh, every day, right? The alarm clock goes off too early for our tastes, right? And, and we kind of roll ourselves out of bed and we realize you slept funny, so you've got that, that slight ache in your back. And, and you, the first thing you do is, is you walk over to the bathroom and then you forget and you flip the lights on and it's too bright. And so you're, you're, now your eyes are in pain too. And you, they, you're kind of rubbing them and you're splashing some water on them and then you begin to look into the mirror. And what you see is not pretty. You're up late at a youth event or at a movie or struggling with your kids who are sick. And you just fell into bed and you didn't brush your teeth and it's obvious from the night before that you didn't brush your teeth. Furthermore, your hair is standing up in every direction. If you're a guy, hopefully a guy, you realize you should have shaved three days ago. And so you're staring at this monstrosity in the mirror. And you kind of look at yourself and you say, yeah, that's pretty rough. And you look at your watch and say, oh, I've got that meeting today. And you just leave the bathroom, put your clothes on and walk right out the door looking like that. Now, who does that? I mean, nobody. I mean, if you have to, you jump in for the 30-second shower, right, where you're just kind of hoping all the soap makes it from your hair down the rest of your body, and you make yourself look presentable for the day. I mean, nobody just looks at the nat- their natural appearance and says, oh, the great, I'm an Adonis, and walks away. They just don't do that. Men, even if it's not us who think so much on it, ladies, come on. Uh, I, okay, I, I, I know. I've been on trips where we're sitting there waiting, so what is taking so long with the ladies? We've got to go. We're going to miss our... Okay? We all do this. And James says, it's no different with the Word. In fact, it's worse. We come to God's Word and it shows us what we really are like. It exposes the sin in our lives. It exposes the double standard by which we live. And he says, how foolish is the person who sees that laid bare and walks away and does nothing? How foolish the person. He says, don't you understand the law that is given to us? The very Word of God is a law of liberty. God exposes our sin, not, to, not to, to beat us down and make us feel horrible about ourselves. He exposes our sin so that way we can be free of it. That we can identify, you know what? I'm wrapped up in this sin and I don't need to be. And we can repent and, and move on and find freedom from that sin. But the problem is we don't deal with it. We look to the Word and we see our sin and we say, oh, it's not that big of a deal, is it? I mean, come on, I'm saved. Isn't that enough? And James says, no, it is not enough. In fact, it is the height of folly. It is a demonstration of your lack of love for God that you walk away unchanged. And he shows what this unchanged life looks like. He shows again and again and again by example. He says, these are the kind of things that show someone who is divided in their love between God and the world. Someone who is double-souled, inconsistent in their faith and their walk. The first thing he says is, you don't care much for people. You don't care much for people. Verse 27 of chapter 1. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. 
Now, I know we talk a lot and say, well, we're not a religion, we're in a relationship. Well, okay, yeah, yeah. But James can still say there is such a thing as true religion and false religion. That's the biblical terminology. And he says, true religion is this, you care about people who are helpless. That's what true religion looks like. Later in chapter 2, he says this, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, then you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. What is he saying here? He says, here's two examples of neglecting your neighbor. You're either ignoring them or passing over them in favor of one who might benefit us. You can say you love God all you want, James says, but if your life doesn't show it, you really don't love him like you should or you think you do. Specifically, if you care nothing about orphans and widows, or if you'd rather kick over the poor to fawn over the rich, don't say you love God, because that's not how God's people show their love for him. Do you see that? James says in very practical terms, look, don't say, don't say you're a child of the king. Don't say you are his emissary to a sinful world and then act like that. That is an indicator that you are a divided person. You are divided in your love and your loyalty between this world and God himself. But he goes on, what's your language like? What's your language like? In chapter 3, James says, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. He goes on and says, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God our Father. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be so. Ever say anything bad about somebody? Ever grumble, complain, gripe, in some way show impatience or dislike for someone with your words, particularly a fellow believer? James says, then how can you stand here and sing praise to God with the same mouth? How can you in, how can you in one moment use the, the, the very voice that God has given you, the lips, the tongue, the ability to speak and to form sentences, to put down someone made in His image and then think it's okay to come into the gathering of God's people and sing praises with the same mouth and ability? He says, that's like going to a pond and expecting to find salt water there. Or going to a, a vine that would grow grapes and, and hoping to pick off figs instead. He says, that just doesn't happen. It's not right. It's not natural. He says, likewise, for the person who is devoted to God, or the person who loves God with all their mind, heart, soul, and strength as we are commanded to, he says, we, we would not use our mouth in that way. Now we could go on and on and on and on. And I just encourage you, sit down and read James. Particularly if you need a good spiritual boxing about the ears, James will give it to you. He's, I mean, he's not, he, doesn't, he doesn't understand the concept of filter and that's good because we need that sometimes. But more than just pointing out these, uh, these examples, what we really need to, to come to grips with is this. What is your inconsistency? What is my inconsistency? It's one thing to talk about theoretical people, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but in your life, what is going on that betrays your love for God? What is going on in your life that shows you are not loving Him the way that you should be loving Him? And that, in fact, you are a spiritual adulterer. That's what James is calling us to. And yet, at the same time, he says, don't despair. Don't despair. He says, recognize the spiritual adultery of your life, but don't despair. Instead, remember God's character. Remember God's character. This is the second thing that we see this morning. 
Remember God's character. James holds out the call for spiritual wholeness by reminding his readers of God's character, specifically his character in relationship to his people. And he shows us two things. First, he shows us that God is jealous for his people. James says in verse 5, well, let's go ahead and read verse 4 to get the contrast. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? Here is the encouragement we need in the midst of our sin. Because there is always the temptation to feel like God doesn't want anything to do with us when we've sinned. Why do we feel that way? Why is that a temptation? I mean, I guess I should back up and say, is that a temptation for you? I know it is for me. I mean, sometimes you sin and you just stand back and you think, you know, wow, why in the world did you do that? I was so stupid. And you, and, you, and you want to pray and ask forgiveness and you think, he doesn't even want to hear me right now. He's got to be sick with me. And, and, and sometimes you, you just live in guilt. Why are we afraid that God is going to reject us? I'll tell you why, because that's how we act. Someone sins against us and we say, I don't, I don't want to talk to you anymore. I don't want have anything to do with you. In the fickleness of our sinful hearts, we one minute profess undying love for someone and the next banish them from our lives. Why? Because we're sinful. And yet, in our sin, we want to project that back on God and suppose that He's going to act the same way, that He is going to reject us in our sin. But surely we have seen over the last year, that's not the God of the Bible, is it? I mean, time and time again as we walk through the Old Testament, God not only received back their people after they sinned, He actively went after them. James says, do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealousy over the Spirit that He made to dwell in us? Now, I, I need to tell you, I think that my translation, and, and I think most of them that have quotes, get this wrong because there's no, I mean, you can do a search, there's no text that says this in the Old Testament. And I think our translators got it wrong because I don't think James is trying to do a direct quote. I think he's simply reminding us of the great, one of the great themes of the Old Testament. Remember, there's no, there's no quotation marks in the original. James wrote in all capital letters, all smushed together, and you just had to hear it read to know where the words were broken up. And I think that uh, that's what he's talking about. It's not so much one text. It is this pervasive, unyielding theme throughout the Old Testament scriptures of God's jealousy for His people. Not the jealousy that we think of, an envious resentment of someone. No, the kind of righteous desire that a husband has for his wife, desiring her to be faithful to him alone. Likewise, God has loved his people and he is rightfully passionate about seeing them remain loyal in their affections towards him. When we stray into sin, loving the world, God comes after us, he says, yearning for our fellowship. God is jealous for His people, but James says He's also gracious towards His people. God is gracious towards His people. James says that even when His people are spiritual adulterers, God still wants them to return. But more than that, he says, God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the, the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now think about that for a minute. God gives more grace. In this life, there will forever be a constant fight against worldliness. 
the letter of James, you're never going to get to a spot and say, oh, yeah, I remember that, conquered that, moving on. It's not going to happen. There is a war in our soul daily. Who are we going to love today? Who are we going to love this moment? Are we going to love God and trust His promises that He will provide more joy than this sin? Or are we going to love ourselves and to love that sin, misbelieving that it will somehow bring us the happiness that we seek? And what does God say? He says, in this never-ending fight that seems at times unwinnable, God gives more grace. When circumstances get hard in life and we're tempted to despair, God gives more grace. When the things of this world are dangled in front of our eyes and we long for sin, God gives more grace. It reminds me of the man who uh, was submitting a painting to an art exhibit and it, he had painted uh, uh, Niagara Falls and the gallery was getting ready to start the, uh, their show in, in about a week and they couldn't get a hold of the painter but he had left the painting untitled. And they didn't just want to put untitled in the booklet or on the thing. So uh, they didn't know, they didn't, you know, they couldn't get a hold of it. And then finally they said, well, we're going to have to come up with our own title for this painting. So here it is, this great scape of Niagara Falls. And here's the title they put, More to Follow. More to Follow. Now, whether that was meant to be a joke or not, I don't know. But think about what they're saying there. Billions of gallons of water go over the falls every year and it's been doing that for hundreds if not thousands of years and yet there's more to follow isn't there i mean no no honeymooning couple is going to go up to niagara falls all happy and starry-eyed and kissing on each other and go and pull up to the falls and it's dry say like, what happened you know it's not going to happen is it there's always more to follow likewise with god's grace Despite temptation after temptation, despite sin after sin, despite failure after failure, there is still more to follow. God continues to give more grace. Our God may be a consuming fire, but He's also gracious and compassionate, abounding in steadfast love. He will always give more grace to those who need it. And if there's any doubt that God will not spare any amount of grace to us, we only need to look to the giving of His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. He didn't send Jesus for righteous people. He sent Jesus for sinners who needed grace. Sinners who have rebelled against God and have earned nothing but the fullness of God's wrath in hell, and yet God graciously gave them His Son. Grace is receiving what you don't deserve. We didn't deserve Christ. Nobody does. But in love, God graciously gave Him to us to die on a cross in our place, taking the wrath that we earn, that we might have forgiveness from God. If you're in one of our community groups in the last several weeks, you have been reminded of the simplicity and the beauty with which John the Apostle expresses this. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. You may be here this morning and you may have never received eternal life with God because you never trusted in Christ. You could have attended church every single day of your life. Like a good Southern Baptist, you could have been on the cradle roll membership. And yet you've never come to a place of personal faith where you have said, I realize I am not going to make it to heaven because of what I do, but only because of what Christ has done for me. This morning, the promise is held out. Receive Christ 
Turn away from your sins. Trust in Him as your substitute to make you right with God. And God will forgive you and make you right with Him. And for those of you who are Christians, who have received Christ, yet have failed to love Him as you should, James says, recognize the sinful reality of your life, but then remember the grace that was given to you. And more than that, remember the grace that God still still holds out for you even this day. And once we have done that, once we have done that, then we must return to God with humble faith. This is the last thing we'll see this morning. We must return with humble faith. This is a quote. They get it right this time from Proverbs. God gives grace to the humble. And if God does give grace to the humble, the question must be, how can we become humble? How do we humble ourselves? If it's the humble that get grace, we need to be humble. Well, James tells us exactly what it means to do this. He tells us in verses 7 through 10, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Because of the way it's positioned between verse 6 and verse 10 with these these twin themes of humbling, most commentators believe that it's this middle section in which James is telling us exactly how to go about humbling ourselves. This is the actual things we can do to show God that we are in need of His grace. He gives what are three groupings of commands telling us how to receive the grace we need to live with single-minded devotion to God. Specifically, he's writing here telling us that we are to repent of our sins, submitting ourselves to God's will. That's really what it looks like. First, he tells us what to do in order to humble ourselves in submission to God. We are to resist and we are to draw near. To submit to God means that we are placing ourselves under his lordship, carrying out his commands. And he tells us that in order to do this, we must both resist the devil and draw near to God. And both those commands come with a promise. He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's good news, isn't it? Is the devil fierce? Yes. Is he powerful? Yes. But is he defeated? Yes. The devil, the devil is not our biggest concern. I know sometimes we think he is. Sometimes we resort to Flip Wilson theology when we sin. The devil made me do it. But friends, it is our own sinful hearts that we need to be most aware of. Yes, Satan may tempt us. He may may, uh, dangle out the candy of sin in our eyes. But what does James say? If we will flee from the temptation, we will flee from the devil, then he will flee from us. If we resist him, then he will flee. Is that not what the Lord Jesus himself did? He withstood him to his face battling with Scripture, and Satan fled. Satan is a defeated enemy. If you resist him, he will flee. But more than that, in your resistance, if you draw near to God, James says, he will draw near to you. Think about that. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I mean, what sweeter promise can there be in all the Bible? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It doesn't say if you're really godly, God will draw near to you. If you've done all the right things at church that week, God will draw near to you. If you fulfill all of your legal obligations, 
If the Ten Commandments have been tattooed on your arm and you obey them every day by looking left and right and left and right, then God will draw near to you. He simply says, draw near to God and God will draw near to you. What that means is even in the midst of the worst sin, if we will submit ourselves to God, if we will seek to resist the devil and flee from that sin and draw near to God, God will not just be standing there waiting. He will come to us and meet us with open arms drawing near to us. Second, James not only tells us what to do, but he tells us how to do it. How are we to draw near to God? He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You know, several decades ago now, there was a famous gangster named Mickey Cohen, and he was notorious as a gangster for his crime. And yet, at one point, he actually uh, attended a series of uh, revival meetings. And uh, actually, I think he only attended one, and a bunch of preachers kind of descended on him and, uh, and kept uh, meeting with him and urging him uh, to, to come back for more thinking. What an amazing thing it would be for this gangster to get saved. And so they got him to come back one night, and the, the, the preacher made the appeal from Revelation 3 that, that Christ was standing at the door knocking, and if you would just let him come in, he would, he would dine with you and you with him. And so Mickey Cohen agreed to, to let Christ come into his life. And of course, all of the, all the preachers were ecstatic, and yet months go by, and there's no change. He's still in his life of organized crime. And so uh, they approach him again and say, you know, what happened? Uh, you know, you, you said that you became a Christian, and yet nothing has changed. And, and Cohen got incredulous, and he said, no one told me that coming to Christ meant giving up my friends and giving up my work. And here's his response. Look, you've got Christian football players, you've got Christian politicians, you've got Christian cowboys. Why can't there be Christian gangsters? Now there were two problems there. But the most important was this, he had not heard the gospel. Because the gospel says that in turning to God, we repent. We turn away from our sins. James says, there, are no, there is no place for Mickey Cohen's in the church. When you submit to God, you look at your life and you seek to get rid of sin. You see your old mindsets, your old habits, the old patterns of behavior that now would betray that your life is with Christ and you seek to leave them behind as you draw near to God. By the power of the Spirit and Word and prayer, you seek to allow God's grace to to evaporate these things from your life. You come with repentance and a turning away from sin. Finally, James tells us what it will look like as we acknowledge our sin and seek God's forgiveness as we seek to draw near to Him. He says we will weep over our sin. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now we hear that, and let's be honest, that does not make a good call to worship verse, does it? I mean, that's not what we typically think of when we think about coming to this place, right? Certainly, if we press and say, well, should we repent of sin at church? We'd say, well, absolutely, absolutely. But is this the context in which we want it to come? Gloom and mourning and weeping? No. And yet, and yet, James' point is not to deny that the joy of the Lord is our strength or all of the things that that Paul says about joy, but rather what he wants us to understand is this. We cannot truly know the joy of the Lord until we have first wept over our sin. 
See, darkness comes at night, but joy comes in the morning. That's what the psalmist says. It's only after we've seen the depths of our rebellion and understand the even further depths of God's grace through His forgiveness in Christ that we can truly experience joy. We may be happy, we may be go lucky, but we're not joyful because we have no concept of God's grace unless we have first seen the horrific reality of our sin. And even as believers, don't we slip into a casual attitude towards sin sometimes? We think we've been there, done that, got the t-shirt and the bumper sticker, and we just kind of we just kind of settle for flowing down the river of life and yet James says, "Look, the pattern of maturity, the pattern of maturity is not taking sin lightly." It's taking it more seriously and more seriously and more seriously. Not that we're always dour about it, but the dourness must come before the true joy of the Christian living can come. In the end, humbling ourselves means recognizing our own spiritual poverty, acknowledging our need of God's help, and submitting to His commands for our life. It means acting on the belief that Jesus is not only our Lord who is to be obeyed, but also our Savior who is to be adored. True joy, true spiritual strength comes only when we first see our sin for what it is, then seek God's forgiveness, repenting in humble faith, believing we have been forgiven in Christ. Perhaps the best picture of this that I can give comes from James' own brother, Jesus. A story that he tells in Luke 15, here is what. Our Lord says, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. So he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Just treat me as one of your hired servants." And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost. But now he is found. And they began to celebrate. Father, as we think about the great grace of the Father in that passage, God, it is, it is just a bare echo of the grace that you have shown us. For Father, while we were still sinners, you sent Christ to die for us. Father, before we were ever seeking you, you sought us. Yet, Father, even here is a picture of your people those who are your sons and yet choose to wander away, 
to play in the world and love other things beside you. And yet, God, here is the amazing reality that you yearn to have fellowship with us again, that, God, you give us more grace that we might come back and have fellowship with you. Father, as we think about our lives, as we think about our divided loyalty and loves, God, help us to remember the words of James. Help us to remember that you desire to have us back, that you have made a way for us to come, humbling ourselves, God, realizing how we have sinned against you, and yet promising that you will receive us again because Christ has ultimately died for our sins. Justice has been served at the cross. And therefore, Father, under the abundance of your grace and mercy, you invite sinners back to your throne. Father, as we read this text, may we not ignore it, may we not forget it, but Father, by your grace, may we truly live it this day and in the coming days and weeks. Father, may we continue to live it until your Son returns for us. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.